Welcome to Psych for Psychology, a Nystrom & Associates podcast. Our host, Brett Cushing, is a licensed marriage and family therapist at Nystrom. Each week, he talks about all things mental health and therapy with guests, and you get a chance to dive into specific psychology topics that help promote personal development and wellness. And now, your host, Brett. Well, let's yep. let's maybe continue yeah. with uh, the next segment of this uh, two-part series on sleep. Could you maybe summarize those six rules for sleep that you had just been talking about? Sure. So rule number one is set a standard time and get up at that time every day. And again, these rules apply for people who have problems sleeping or need medications, not for everyone. Use the bed for sleeping and intimacy only. Don't read, watch TV, or do other things in bed. Anytime you're awake more than 15 to 20 minutes and can't sleep, get up, get out of bed, go do something pleasurable or enjoyable. And then when you start to feel sleepy, go back to sleep. Don't worry, plan, or ruminate in bed. If you do that, you're going to train yourself to do that in bed, and it's going to become a habit. Don't nap during the daytime and go to bed only when you're sleepy, but not before your normal bedtime. Wow, uh, great. Thanks for that summary. And I just, as I'm listening to that, wondering, because I'm sure other people are listening, thinking, all right, I do those six rules. How long do I have to be doing this before I see some real tangible results in my sleep? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So usually it's about two to four months. So Think of it this way, because because again, it's called stimulus control because it, it comes out of the behavioral research that we can condition ourselves to do certain things or react certain ways. Conditioning takes time. If you suddenly stopped doing getting that electric shock that made you feel anxious at the thought of seeing me, if I shocked you every time I saw you, then it's not going to go away right away. The first mm-hmm. time we meet and I don't shock you, it's not going to disappear. Conditioning takes time and deconditioning takes time. So for people who are going to follow those rules, they need to know that it's not going to be an immediate thing. But if they do it for two to four months, they will start seeing results. Wow. Do you find that um, of those six rules, do you find that people struggle with one or two of them more than the others? I have a thought on that, but I want to hear what you think. Yeah. The one, the one that I think, and I actually tell my patients this, the rule that you're going to break that is going to slow your progress the most is not getting out of bed when you can't sleep. Oh, and the okay. reason for that is whenever we put effort into sleep, you are not able to sleep. So like when I was doing my training, we went to a sleep lab. And they asked if there was someone there who could nap at any time in any place. And at the time, I had untreated sleep apnea. And so I I could fall asleep in a chair in a dentist's office, right? Yeah. So I could sleep at any time. So I'm like, I'll volunteer. I'll go to sleep because I can sleep at any moment. And I hadn't slept well the night before. And they hooked me up to all the stuff that they used to do a sleep study. And they're like, okay, nap. And I could not sleep. And the reason was because I was trying to sleep. So the people who see the best results are the ones who follow that rule about not just lying awake in bed. I'm wow. curious what your thought was. So, on that, that we no, that, that's great. Mine was um, 
use your bed for sleep and intimate activities only. And the reason I thought of that one is not only TV, because a lot of people have a television in their bedroom, but our phones. Mm -hmm. Because I will be honest, I'll just out myself. I will look at my phone in my bed before bed. And again, this gets into a whole other conversation about like blue light and all that stuff. But so that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. And, you know, for some people, like I'll have patients come in and they'll say, if, if I read for five or 10 minutes, I get so sleepy, I can fall right to sleep. You're going to take that away from me. And yeah. I always say, well, let's, let's look at your sleep log and let's let the data make the decision. So mm. if you're one of those people that can do that, great. But the mm -hmm. TV is different and, and yeah. so are the phones because yeah, you're right. Not only are you doing an activity in bed, but mm -hmm. you're also getting that blue-green spectrum of light. Yep. And the research shows those blue light filters don't work because the green light is actually more stimulating than the blue light. Wow. I had no idea. The other thing that, that people don't realize is they'll say, well, I have to have a noise on in the background, so I leave the TV on, but I'm not watching it. Well, if oh. we had them hooked up to an EEG like they do during sleep studies, we would see that all night long their brain is paying attention to that TV. And every time there's a change in pitch, tone, or volume, or if there's language, you would see the centers of the brain start to become more active because it's attuning to that. And it actually keeps you from getting to that deeper sleep that we talked about earlier is so important for health. Well, that's, I, I'm so glad you pointed that out because I think a lot of times people don't realize what's all going on inside their brain and body. <laughs> they're they're right. kind of thinking, I sleep just fine with the TV on, right? Or the TV noise is actually what helps me sleep, you know, but they're not seeing, like you said, if they were hooked up to machines and could see, they would probably realize what is it, what all is going on. Right. And that's that's true in many ways. So if we go back to our caffeine discussion, there are people who will come in who say, I can drink a pot of coffee and go right to sleep. Yes. And it's like, yes, you can drink the caffeine and you're able to sleep. You're one of the lucky few who can do that. But if we looked at your sleep, you would see that it was much more shallow than if you didn't have caffeine, mm. that you would have these micro awakenings where you come out of a deeper stage of sleep to awake or almost awake. Mm. And you don't realize it because they're so short and the quality of your sleep is much, much less. So mm. people will say that and it's like, well, you're you're again, you're drinking caffeine and then your brain is reacting to this. And you're not getting good sleep, which is why you can drink caffeine and sleep. Yep. Okay, so let's go further down this line of thinking. I can drink a pot of coffee or coffee right before I go to bed. I used to be able to drink a Mountain Dew right before I went to bed. What about people who say, I really, I need a drink, uh, like wine uh, or a cocktail before I go to bed. It really helps me sleep. Is that a myth I, or yeah. what would you say? No, actually, it's true. So alcohol is one of the best sedatives out there. It, it's a depressant. It depresses everything. And alcohol binds with these receptors in your brain that are called GABA receptors. Mm -hmm. And GABA relaxes the entire bodies. So if you look at most of the sleep medications out there, they bind with the GABA receptors the same way that alcohol does. But here's what happens when you drink alcohol as a nightcap, it will help you fall asleep faster. Guarantee what it does to the rest of the night is horrific because as 
GABA levels rise in the brain. Alcohol is processed very quickly through the body. And the way your brain tries to compensate as you're drinking more and more is it releases this chemical called glutamate, which is an excitatory chemical. So think about people who drink and they have one drink and they relax and they have five drinks and they're dancing on the tabletop right? That's because that glutamate builds up. Only the brain overcompensates. So as this glutamate is building, the alcohol and the GABA is dropping. And now you have a person who is highly stimulated. So we know that people who drink alcohol as a nightcap, they fall asleep faster, but they wake more often throughout the night. Their sleep is lighter and less shallow. And if you're a person who drinks really heavily, like an alcoholic, you can actually start to damage the systems of the brain that control sleep. Mm. So alcohol is what we call, there's two parts to it. There's the gift, which is that it helps you fall asleep. (laughs) And then there's the curse, which is what happens afterwards. I'm so glad you said that, because initially when you said, you know, it's one of the best sedatives out there, I was thinking, all right. I know, we both looked at each other like, wow, okay, keep going. Like, it's a magical solution. But no, I I think, again, really important Mm -hmm. for our listeners and for for us, you know, to just think about what might seem like a good solution is, can be really tricky. And so I think another thing that I wanted to touch on and that we could maybe help our listeners is sleep medications. So similarly, we had talked a little bit on the last episode about Advil PM, you know, some of these over the counter ones that actually are, you know, do have these long-term effects. I think sleep medications, my, when I have patients who are on a sleep medication and have issues with sleep, there's this hopelessness about ever getting off of it. Like I can never sleep without it. So kind of, is there any encouragement or like message you have for people who want to hear about like, getting off a sleep medication? There is, but if I could go back briefly to the alcohol topic. Oh, please, absolutely. One of the other things is alcohol affects sleep in profound ways. Alcohol suppresses REM sleep. REM sleep is where we dream. So what you find is that people who have problems with nightmares, like think of people with PTSD or even veterans coming back, they find that if they drink, it suppresses that REM sleep and they don't have as many nightmares. What they don't know is that REM sleep is what's called homeostatic. Think of it like hunger. The -hmm. longer it's been since you've eaten, the hungrier you are. The longer it's been since you've dreamt, the more likely it is you're going to dream and that dream will be intense. Mm. So what happens is people will drink it so that they don't have those nightmares. But when that alcohol wears off during the night, they get this rebound and they get an intensification of nightmares. And that's why it's not uncommon to see people who use alcohol to fight nightmares will have to wake up in the middle of the night to redose again, because otherwise the second half of their night is going to be horrific. Wow. No, I'm glad you went back to that. Is there anything else about alcohol that you wanted to highlight? Because I think that's a really big topic. We, we could spend an entire podcast on <laughs> alcohol and sleep. We so could, the yeah. other thing is, is that we talked about the importance of slow wave sleep when the brain cleanses itself, but it's also where the body does tissue repair, cellular regenesis. Alcohol suppresses slow wave sleep. So you just don't get as much, if any. And so when you think of people who are drinking really hard and really heavily for a long time, they start to show it physically in their appearance. And part of that is because of the impact it has on sleep. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense, too, because 
I don't know, you see people or people have probably seen me when they haven't had a, a good night's sleep and they're just a little haggard, you know, a little disheveled. And over time, that really does have an effect on our appearance, doesn't it? Right. So to to go back then to, to your question, Krista, about sleep medications is sleep medications, again, treat a symptom, but they don't resolve the problem. And the issue is with most sleep medications, you build up tolerance to them and over time they lose their effectiveness. And so people want to know, you know, what do I do if I've been on a sleep medication and it's not working and there's nothing else for me to try? Mm-hmm. So most people who do the behavioral treatments will notice significant improvement. 80% of people who do cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia will no longer be have insomnia at the end of that treatment. Wow. But the thing is, is with medications is there, there's research out there that shows that if you treat insomnia with a medication, you're going to get a quick result. And over time, that insomnia will return. If you treat insomnia with CBTI, you'll see long lasting and durable results. If you treat a sleep problem with insomnia, with um, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and a medication, they'll do better. But if you do cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia with medication tapering, where as your sleep is improving, you're reducing your medication, those are the people who do best. And so, you know, my goal is always to respect the wishes of a patient and a prescribing doctor. So if a patient comes in and they're like, I'm on this medication, I don't want to come off this medication, I always tell them, I don't have a dog in the show. So if Mm. that's what you want and that's what your doctor's agreeing with, let's just make it better using this behavioral treatment on top of the medication. So the other side of this, though, is if people want to get off sleep medications, we can usually do that. And depending on the medication, that can happen pretty easily. So I don't take a hard stance on medications. I try to educate patients about the risks and benefits of medications because there are benefits. But I also know that some sleep medications are also used to treat or augment other treatments. Mm -hmm. So for example, someone who has um, depression and is on an antidepressant, they might be on another antidepressant that's usually used for sleep called trazodone because it makes the other medication more effective. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the whole thing with sleep medications is a lot of sleep medications are actually used to treat other conditions. So amnitriptyline is another one. It's an old antidepressant, but it's used to treat headaches, chronic pain, fibromyalgia. So if a person is on that and they need to stay on that because it's also treating another condition, I'm not going to say you can't be on the medication. If you want off of it and your doctor wants you off it, great, let's do that. But if not, go ahead and stay on it. Mm -hmm. The other thing is if they're on a medication and they're not getting the results they desire, uh, with a behavior or if they're not on a medication and they're not getting the results they desire um, with behavioral treatments, I'm not opposed to working with them and their prescriber to add a medication to it. I tell my patients, we're going to win by hook or crook. The hook <laughs> is behavioral treatment. And if that doesn't work, then we're going to cheat and we'll look at medications. <laughs> Good. So, 
sleep medications change sleep architecture. They have some long-term health effects, but so does extreme sleep deprivation. Yeah. And, and so again, it's always that risk-benefit balance that you have to look at. And that's not a decision I'm going to make. It's mm-hmm. not a decision the patient is going to make. It's mm-hmm. a decision that all of us with their prescriber need to make. What is the best and least risky treatment for this? Nice. This is so helpful. We keep saying it, but it bears repeating. And a couple observations I have that I really wanted to to highlight, and that is, first of all, what I'm noticing is, is how integral sleep is for us and, and how systemically connected it is to so many other areas of our life, our, our not only our mental health, but also our physiological well-being and how our body operates. It's just so interconnected and extricably linked. And so we, this is really crucial that we get this down. But what, what mitigates that, what, what we're up against is we live in a culture of immediate gratification. And so I I can deal so quickly and efficiently with my lack of sleep because I can use caffeine or if I can't sleep, I can take a pill. And we don't have a lot of distress tolerance to deal with the kind of the interim of doing these behavioral changes where we're going to be uncomfortable for a while. And we're going to have to sort of tolerate that distress. Do you find that with your patients whom you work with, that they're they're just having this desire to quickly go back to what's going to work very much in the short term only? Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, I I liken it to pain medications and physical therapy, Mm. right? Pain medications are instant. They grant relief. But over time, you develop tolerance to them. They don't work well. We now know and have known for a long time that opiate medications increase chronic pain over time. Physical therapy is going to get them a much better result, but it's uncomfortable, it's unpleasant, and it takes time and effort. Mm-hmm. So what, what I always try to tell people is there's that old saying that there's a pill for every ill, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I add a correlate to that. There's a pill for every ill, but every pill causes another ill. Because they all have side effects. Yes, the side effects. Yeah, we need that like on a Nystrom sort of LinkedIn quote, you know, by Dr. Blackburn. I like that. (laughs) It's so true, too. Yeah, I I think um, if so, one thing I really want to make sure that our listeners can can also take away today is let's say I'm listening to this podcast and I'm thinking, you know, I've really had a hard time with sleep. Like how can I get it into this program or like mm-hmm. even, you know, can I see Dr. Blackbird? You know, like I think people are going to want to know how to get, get plugged in. Sure. So patients can get a referral from a Nystrom's provider mm-hmm. and, and they can make what's called an internal referral. They can get a referral from an outside provider or they can refer themselves. Nice. All they need to do is call the Nystrom scheduling line at 844-697-8766 and request an intake with a sleep specialist. So our call center now has a list of which providers provide which sleep treatments to help them get the patient connected to the right person. The goal of this is to make access to these services as easy as possible. 
getting an appointment is fairly quick and usually they can see a sleep specialist within a week or two of calling. So it's not like therapy where you've got a month wait or like psychiatry where you have a several month wait. I can typically get, in fact, yesterday I got someone in in one day Wow! um, because I have openings and sleep treatments tend to be quick. So you don't fill up your caseload and keep people on for a long time. They come in and they go out very quickly, which creates more openings. So the other thing that happens is people are worried that, well, if I'm seeing another provider at Nystrom, so I'm, I'm in therapy for my depression, can I see a sleep specialist at the same time? And the truth is that for most people, yes, they can. They just can't see the two providers on the same day. And so what I always tell people is call your insurance and check. But in most cases, they can continue to see their mental health provider and then also see a sleep specialist on a different day. So the the thing is, is we've had a lot of people who've called in and say, well, I've got to drop out of therapy. That's not true. You don't. There are certain things like um, if you're um, in like an intensive outpatient program or a partial hospitalization program, you can't see an outside provider. But when you finish that program, we can get you in. The other thing is, is with DBT, there's often this rule that you're going to have a therapist is in the DBT program and you're going to do group in the DBT program and you can't see another therapist. And and Brett, I know you're in the program, so you can do this. But I've had multiple DBT therapists say, no, if you want to do sleep while you're in DBT, go ahead and do sleep. Just don't miss your DBT treatments. Okay. That's good to know too. Yeah, very helpful. Yeah, we because we want to we want to get people the help that they need and we want it to be easy. We want therapy to be easy and approachable for people and it sounds like what everything you're saying it really affords that. Mm-hmm. And could you maybe just say that number again that people could call? Sure. It is 844-697-8763. And, and once again, let's say that number again, just so in case people are writing it. So the Nystrom scheduling line is 844-697-876. Terrific. Thank you. And so it sounds like when you call that number, you request to be scheduled with a sleep specialist. Yes. And then they'll know what to do from there. Well, they'll, they'll ask you some questions. So there's, okay. I believe there's currently seven providers who do cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Okay. If you're coming in for one of the other sleep disorders, right now, I'm the only person that's treating those disorders. Okay. Um, and I'll also do pediatrics from six to age 18, as long as they have another wow. Nystrom therapist. Mm, nice. But the goal is, as people go through this training program that Nystrom's is offering to train up clinicians, we'll hopefully have more people who can treat all the sleep disorders. Mm. Good. And um, what if I'm living, if I live somewhere in Minnesota that I'm like worried about getting to a clinic, can we, can people have treatment for insomnia or for sleep disorders over telehealth? Yes. Great. In fact, I would guess probably 99% of my sleep patients are telehealth because they're coming from areas of the state where they can't access another provider. Wow. So 
And it's not just Minnesota. So I'm also licensed in Wisconsin and credentialed in Wisconsin. Nice. So right now, if you are in Minnesota or Wisconsin and you're having sleep problems, you can see me. If you're in Minnesota and you have insomnia, there's about seven people that you can see. And hopefully we'll be expanding into the other areas of the country that Nystrom serves. Because what's really interesting is there's a shortage of, of providers that do the sleep therapy. Right mm. now, there's 17 that are listed on the two listservs uh, in Minnesota. There are six in Missouri, which Nystrom's has recently moved into. There's only four in Wisconsin, two in Iowa, and one in North Dakota. Mm. Wow. Um, so my goal is to build up this panel so that anywhere, if you're a Nystrom's patient, you have access to that. But right now, uh, it's Minnesota and Wisconsin. I want to really encourage people who are listening to if they found this and i'm confident people have found this to be very helpful to them share this podcast with other people share this episode and the preceding episode with others uh, because it is so relevant and sleep is is so integral to all of our lives mm -hmm. and I, I really encourage people you can help somebody else just by listening to this podcast. They can get information that's practical. They can also find out where they need to go and 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 what they need to do to get some additional help. Mm -hmm. What about more information? And I've got one more important question that I have to ask you. But before I do that, I don't want to forget. Like, what? Where can people go for more information about sleep medicine treatments? Sure. So. The, the behavioral sleep medicine treatments are the most validated treatments. In fact, the evidence for cognitive behavioral therapy outweighs the evidence for any other therapy for a mental health condition. Um, but patients can go to a lot of places. So the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine, which is at behavioralsleep.org, uh, they maintain a list of all the CBTI providers that chose to be listed on their listserv. Um, but they also have information about sleep disorders and how they're treated. Penn State Health Sleep and Research Center also maintains the list of CBTI providers in all 50 states. Um, and actually outside, even in other areas, other countries. Um, but they also have a ton of really good information. You can Google or use Yahoo or any search engine and type in, I have insomnia, what's the best treatment? And you're gonna mm -hmm. find cognitive behavioral therapy comes up at the top of it. If people really wanna read and they want a lot of information, especially about the differences between behavioral and medical treatments, in 2016, the American College of Physicians released a consensus statement. And you can download that statement on your internet um, and it basically goes through every single sleep medication, what the evidence is for, what it's against, mm. how well it really works, and all the behavioral treatments. And then at the end, they said that cognitive behavioral therapy is the safest, most effective, most durable treatment, and it should be the first-line treatment for adults with insomnia. That has been replicated by the National Institutes of Health and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, both of which have released consensus statements that basically summarize the research and say, here's what really works. What's interesting is the American College of Physicians statement 
is the first time that a professional medical journal recommended a behavioral treatment over a medicinal treatment. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, it really is. And encouraging. And encouraging. All right. So I need some encouragement. I've been waiting an hour to ask this question and I'll own that this is purely self-motivated. Okay. So I, I just need to know for the record and uh, for my wife, what is the temperature uh, that needs to be set at when we go to bed <laughs> at night? Okay. Well, there's actually research to support this. And oh boy, <laughs> mo- mo- most people sleep better between 65 and 68 degrees. Wait, could you say that one more time, nice and loud? I just need to hear that. Would you like me to send it to your wife in an email? Yes. Most people yeah. sleep better between 65 and 68 degrees. And there's a reason for this. Mm-hmm. Body temperature affects the depth and quality of sleep. In order for us to sleep deeply, our body temperature needs to be dropping. Now, if you get too cold, that can be a problem too. But think about any time you've run a temperature when your body is heating up, the sleep becomes light, fragmented. It's really mm-hmm. not a good quality of sleep. Mm-hmm. Because our deep sleep happens in the first half of the night when the body temperature is dropping. And then about mm-hmm. three to four o'clock in the morning, our body temperature starts to rise. And what's fascinating about sleep is it's gotten into the mythology of many cultures. So the three to four o'clock hour is often referred to as the witching hour or yes, the right. hour. Yeah. It's because most people wake up during that time because that's when their body temperature starts to warm. But before we could explain it as a function of core body temperature, people said it was because evil spirits were out doing mischievous things. And it bore this mythology that comes out of it that's in almost every horror movie. But to go to your question, your body temperature needs to cool throughout the night. And if it can't cool, you're not going to get that deep, sound, restful sleep. Hmm. Now, Men and women have different body masses and their core body temperatures react to different things. So it's not uncommon for men to want the bedroom to be cooler than women. And what I tell people is you can only take off so many covers, but you can add blankets. So if you're in a relationship where someone needs a cooler and the other person doesn't like to be cold, they can add a blanket or a heated blanket or something to compensate for the cooler air temperature. And there it is, folks. There, that. Uh, thank you so much. It's finally been settled, right? I mean, this is like the chicken or the egg, which comes first. This is, this is a centuries-old question, I'm sure, and you have definitively solved this for us. I thank you on behalf of many, many listeners out there. Here, here's the downside to this, though, Brett. No, we can we can stop here. What do you? All right, go ahead. <laughs> What what most people don't realize is 43% of partners do not share the bed at night because one person's sleep habits or sleep environment disrupts the other. So they actually refer to it as a sleep divorce. It doesn't affect the quality or strength of a relationship, but 43% of couples do not share a bed together because they sleep better separately. Right. Yeah. So the Dick Van Dyke show did have something, you know, that was helpful for us. And like, I think they... (laughs) 
Well, I think Lucille Ball, too. You know, they slept in different beds, and it's okay, and it doesn't mean your relationship is in peril. Uh, it just means you're going to be able to sleep better, which might actually be good for the relationship. So, yeah, super helpful. Yeah, actually, they found that the sleep divorce or couples who sleep separately does not affect <laughs> the depth or quality of the relationship as long as both people understand that it's to get better sleep, that it's not like, I don't want to be near you. Mm. Such a great point. And there's so many more points. We are going to have to have you back on again. Yeah, we're going to have to do a whole series. Um, Well, thank you so much today for joining us today. Um, I want to call you, it's Rick, I know, but Dr. Blackburn, I know you've worked very hard to get your doctorate. So we'll call you Dr. Dr. Rick. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for being with us today. And for all our listeners, you know, all of us probably either know someone who struggles with sleep or struggle with sleep ourselves. So be sure to share this with somebody in your life, you know, give it a listen. I'm going to go back and listen to it again. There were so many helpful tidbits, especially the, some of the statistics and some of the, the, the items about um, sleep, you know, the six rules for sleep. So um, we will catch you on the next one. And we're so glad to have you with us for psych for psychology. Well, thank you very much. Thank you as always for listening and please be sure to leave us a review. While this podcast can't be a replacement for therapy, we hope you enjoyed our discussion today and join us again next time. Nice German Associates is always available to those who are struggling. If you find yourself in need of support and help, please check us out at nicestermcounseling.com.